So let's go ahead and start with prayer, and we'll get into the second lesson here of Jonah. Tonight we'll be covering a, uh, most of chapter 1, what we haven't covered so far. I mean, we've only covered three verses so far, but we're going to look at the, um, much of the rest of chapter 1 uh, tonight as we go through this. But let's open in prayer. We'll get started. Father, we thank you as we come before you, and we just acknowledge you are the Almighty God. You are the God who controls everything. Nothing happens without your knowledge. You are perfect. You are holy. And you do not change. You are the same as you were back then with the days of Jonah. We have the same God today, and we thank you. And we just ask now that you would just come among us and open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, that your spirit would just teach us and speak to us, help us to see some amazing things in this book. And some of the reasons, Lord, uh, that... It's part of the Holy Scripture, but why it also shows us wonderful things that we can even apply to our life. And we just ask that you just help us through this as we go through it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jonah, as we talked about last week, we came across uh, who Jonah was and what Jonah's life was like, that he was a prophet of God um, during the reign of Jeroboam II. And we talked about that, um, that he's also found in, in another book of the Bible during, uh, in one of the history books. Um, he was told to go to Nineveh. And last time we were together, I showed you what these people, uh, the Ninevites were like, the Assyrians, the most evil culture they believe that has ever existed on the planet. And that's saying some, because there's been some doozies. But tonight, we're going to see um, what he does and how Jonah sort of uh, goes the opposite direction to everything. That he's not going to go to, of course, um, Nineveh, as God says, but he runs away. But last week we got to, or last time we got to see a little bit of a reason, not making an excuse for him, but a little bit of a reason why <laughs> um, he didn't want to go to, to Nineveh. So let's pick up with this as we go into the, um, the passage here. We'll just start with uh, verse 3 tonight in chapter 1 of Jonah. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Yappa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. So there is what um, the, this first thing that we're going to look at today is, as we're going into the lesson, it begs a question that begins, where is Tarshish? Because... It's not mentioned in any other place in the Bible, so where is this? So what you got to do is go back into a little bit of ancient history and find out where the city was. It was a well-known city during this period of time. Um, and Tarshish was uh, present-day Spain. So he's wanting to go on the other side of the Mediterranean. Now, if you picture, if you have a Bible atlas in the back, and you, you usually in a Bible atlas they'll have, like, even the... Um, They'll show the Paul's travels, and they give you a picture like many times at the Mediterranean, and you can see where Israel is, where Jonah was to start with. And remember, he is from the town of Gath Hepper, which is up by what is later would become Nazareth. And instead of going to the east, where Nineveh is, he goes west. Go west, young man, go west. And he goes as far west as he possibly can, Spain. And that was Tarshish. So he's going in the opposite direction of where God told him. I have a little map here just to give you an idea of where this was. If you don't have a Bible atlas and you can see. So Nineveh is way over here in Asia. Um, and this is where he was supposed to go. And, of course, he's living in Samaria. 
So Gath Hepper was somewhere up here, very close to the Sea of Galilee, um, in, in this area, and he's told to go this direction, but instead it says he goes down to Jaffa. Jaffa is down further on the Mediterranean coast of Israel, and from there he boards a ship which is heading to Tarshish, which is way over on the other side of the Straits of Gibraltar. So that's where he's going. In other words, as far as he can get away from God is what it is. That's where he's, he's trying to get to. So now to do this, we don't know. We're not told what nation took him. What was the ship going? What, you know, was it an Egyptian ship? Was it, was it Greek? Was it whatever? We aren't really told. But there is a very, very strong possibility it was a Phoenician ship. Because the Phoenicians were the masters of the sea. They were sometimes um, referred to as sea people because they were always at sea. They basically, even up to the time of Rome, they basically controlled the Mediterranean. Um, and they did a lot of commerce. They were traveling all over. Um, Phoenicia is today Lebanon, so right into that area. And um, that was the, the country of the Phoenicians. And Phoenicians are mentioned quite a few times in the Bible. Jezebel, uh, Ahab's wife, was a princess, um, the daughter of the king of Phoenicia. But um, Sidonians and stuff like this. But taking a boat, this is an artist's drawing, what I'm giving you here is just an artist's conception of what they believe ships, uh, the Phoenician ships looked like in those days. Um, this would have been a merchant ship, and they would, um, it would have a lower hull, down below where there would be ballast stones, just basically big stones to balance off the ship, of course. Um, it would be, uh, most of these ships were one single mast um, and with rudder systems in the back, of course. Uh, there was a storage area underneath and um, it would go from bow to stern where they would store these things because the Phoenicians were the people who traveled all over the Mediterranean by boat and they did trade with every single country. That was the thing. They were I don't know how you would explain it today, but they were the tradesmen. They were the ones, they were the Walmart of that day. Um, they went everywhere. You couldn't go down the road without seeing a, today, seeing a van or a truck for Walmart. That's how the Phoenicians were. You went out to sea, you found this. You see, Israelites didn't like the sea. If you ever notice this and you're reading the Old Testament, and um, particularly in the Old Testament, you don't see very often anything having to do with Israelites, the Hebrew people, being at sea. They're a bunch of farmers. They didn't like going to sea. Matter of fact, many, um, it appears from ancient writings, were afraid of the sea, of going to sea. And, but the Phoenicians, they were great explorers. They were going all over the place. They were not afraid. They were doing trade everywhere, even all the way to Tarshish. So um, this is the type, probably very similar, because it was a standard type of a, a merchant vessel um, at that time period, and it was probably something along these lines that he went on. It had a small crew um, to, to work the sails and to trim the ship and steer the oars and everything like this, keeping everything all going, the rudder systems. Um, so it had a small crew on board. We know that because it mentions different crew members, uh, not by name, but by, uh, by calling them sailors and, and people on board the ship, the captain and stuff. There were others on board. And they do. Uh, we do know that they would take passengers at times to different areas. The Phoenicians were very good at this kind of thing. So they owned the sea. So likely it was a Phoenician is what he goes down. So I don't know how you guys are. I don't know how many of you have been in the, uh, in the ocean on a small vessel. I mean, maybe you've been on a big cruise ship. These things they make today, 100,000 tons or something like that, over 10 stories high. It was nothing like that. Um, these things were small little crafts, um, not much over 100 feet long. And trying to take something like this across, all the way across the Mediterranean, 
to a lot of people today, that would be scary. Um, being a Hebrew it was probably a scary idea too. Uh, we pretty well guessed that Jonah had never spent time at sea. So this is something totally new for him in, in going. So he would book passage on this during the daytime when it's nice weather, he'd be on the deck, um, probably sleeping below as being a passenger. So that was like what the ship was like. Now let's go on to the next two verses, verses four and five. It says, now they're at sea. It says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So we see that there is a uh, storm at sea that's taking place now. Um, now, one thing I don't want you to miss in this, this book here. This is important. This is one of the key things about this. God is sovereign over nature. I mean, we see this with Jesus and the disciples. If you'll recall, Jesus a couple of times goes on a boat in the Sea of Galilee and big storms and waves come up. That is very common. Um, being when I was in Israel a couple of times and talking to people at the, the hotels, particularly when we stayed one time when I was there and we stayed at a place called En Gev, which is on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. As soon as we got to the hotel, the manager of the hotel came out, greeted us in their customary thing. They give us fruit juice and stuff like this. They always give you juice and, and things to drink as soon as you walk in, just a customary thing. And then he proceeded to tell us, yeah, the rooms and everything. I'll, I'll tell you where your rooms are. But he says, I want you to note, many of you will probably want to go swimming in the Sea of Galilee. We prefer you do that in the morning and not in the late afternoon towards evening because storms many times come up. And storms can cause waves of over 30 feet in this lake. And so it was a warning that they always told us about that. When they were saying this, I was thinking, oh, yeah, this sounds familiar to biblical things. Um, but God, just like how Jesus would stand up when the disciples, oh, the ship's going to sink, and he stands up and rebukes the, the storm, and instantly it's quiet. God is the God of nature. So the same God that is doing that in the form of Jesus is the same God who we're going to be seeing here. In this case, he's causing a storm to come up. Now, this storm was not just an ordinary storm. It was a mighty storm. These are very, very common in the Mediterranean, even to this day. If you'll recall, Paul uh, was shipwrecked on one of his missionary journeys. Actually, Paul says that he was shipwrecked three times. There's one that's recorded in the Bible, but he says specifically he was shipwrecked three times in his travels. So storms come up and they know about this. And these mariners are used to these storms, particularly if they're Phoenician. They know what it's like, uh, how these seas act and stuff like this. So this was a mighty storm that came up in the sea. But this storm was different because what we, you might notice in that passage, these mariners are calling out to their God. They've noticed this is not an ordinary storm. They catch this. They catch that this is not an ordinary storm. This is something supernatural. So as this supernatural storm comes, they're like, you know, what are we doing? You know, how are we going to handle this? And they call out to their gods, it says, for help, for safety. And what are they doing? They're, they're throwing things overboard to lighten the ship and stuff and trying to do anything to survive. But it, you can really see, if you look at this, that the storm is pretty strong. Now, the, the thing that amazes me is it says in here that Jonah is asleep down 
under the hold. He's obviously on the deck because if he was on the deck, he'd be getting swashed with the, the waves and stuff. He's down below where the passengers would be, particularly during a storm. They don't want passengers on the deck. They make you go down below. And as he was down below, it says that he's asleep. And while he is asleep, um, it's, it's most likely that he is seasick. Now, I don't know how many of you have ever been at sea. Uh, I mean, you can get seasick. My mom would get seasick walking out on the end of a dock on a, on a pond. Um, she was, she was, oh, I don't feel, you know, I don't feel well. It, she really did. Um, but I don't know if, how many of you have been at sea and have gotten seasick. Um, I have never been seasick. Now that I said that, this year's marine biology trip, I'll probably be hurling and feeding the fish. But I have never been seasick. I've watched my wife get seasick a number of times where she turns as white as, as snow um, and passes out like. Um, I have been on enough marine biology trips when we've been out in bad weather that I have seen students hurling over the side. Of course, I've seen students hurling over the side on a calm day. But uh, I've had people during some really bad travels. We came back one time in a pretty good storm, and people were just hurling and, and things, and we've had people actually pass out. Um, one story in particular was a girl. Her name was Sharon. She was from Chicago, and we were out on the marine biology trip, and it was a beautiful day, but the seas, the swells were pretty high. We probably had about eight to tw uh, ten foot swells. The waves weren't very high, but the swells, just the water going up and down. And the boat was hurling. We're on about a 60 foot, uh, 68 foot catamaran, it was called, the Pegasus. And we were going just up and down on this thing. And some of the kids, before they could even get in the water, were just throwing up everywhere. Um, but after the thing was over, you know, some of the kids are in the water, and when they get back on board, they climb on board, they take their towel, wrap up, and then they sit in the sun trying to warm up. Because uh, the water is cold when we go down to the Florida Keys at Easter time. It's usually like maybe, you know, 78 or 80 degrees. To me, that's frigid. Um, but I'm a wuss. I know it. But there was this girl, Sharon, who, after we got everybody back on board, she was snorkeling came back on board, and as we're doing a head count before we head back, we realize we're one kid short. So we pull out the manifest. The captain, you know, checks with me. We got the manifest. We're going through, and we're calling out everybody's name, and this girl, Sharon, is missing. So all the crew members are taking binoculars. They're scanning all around, looking for another snorkeler in the water. There's a couple of other dive boats. The captain's on board saying, did you happen to pick up? Maybe she went to a, the wrong boat or something. We're looking all over. Everybody's calling back. No, we, we have everybody we're supposed to have. Um, it's towards the end of the day. Boats are heading back in. It's time for us to go back in. We can't find the student. We're looking everywhere. I am like, oh my gosh, this is so bad. This is the worst thing that can happen. And I remember walking down to the stern of the ship um, and I was praying, oh God, this is going to be the end of my teaching career. I've lost a student. Student's been eaten by a shark or drowned or something. I don't know what's happened. And I'm standing on the stern as the captain is now calling the Coast Guard to report that we've got a missing person. As I'm standing here, there's a pile of towels, wet towels for when you get on board. They give you a towel and you take the wet towel, you dry off, and then you just throw a, you know, they just pile up as the thing's going. And I'm standing right on the stern next to this pile of like three and a half, four feet high of just wet towels from the 60-something people we have on board. I'm standing holding on to the, the rail and I just happen to look down at my foot as I'm praying. And underneath all these wet towels is this white bleached out hand underneath everything. And I th yelled out, I think I found her. I started pulling everything out. And here she was. She had passed out. She had wrapped up under uh, with a towel 
And while she was trying to dry off, she just passed out. She was so seasick and she just fell down and people didn't notice her fall, but they saw the towel there. And so people just start throwing the towels on top of her. <laughs> I suspect Jonah, being a landlubber, being a, a Hebrew who does not go to sea, we're in a massive storm, uh, a very severe storm. I can't help but think that this guy is seasick down below. <laughs> That's where it says he's asleep. Yeah, I think he's passed out is probably what's going on. So, um, and so what's happening? The, the captain calls on the people to have the gods intervene. Start praying to the gods. Throw the cargo over. But hey, let's start asking the gods what's going on. So they're starting to call out to all their false gods, all their idols and stuff, looking for divine help because they think, you know, we're about to go down. They're, they're panicking at this point. And these are seasoned mariners, you understand. If he's taking a trip to Tarshish, he's going on, a board, on board a ship that has seasoned uh, mariners. And these guys are terrified because they realize this isn't a normal storm. So they start calling out to the gods. The gods must be responsible for this type of a storm. It's that bad. And as we know, they start throwing the cargo over, just start heaving everything because the boat is going to break up. These boats were not made that strong back in uh, this period of time. So they start really getting nervous and they're doing everything they can to try to lighten the boat and getting rid of the cargo. There goes their money and stuff, but they're trying to save their lives. Now, we pick up at verse 5. It says, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. Yeah, like I say, I think he's probably seasick. Uh, verse 6, So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So poor old Jonah, who's laying there, and I had to look around to try and find something. Um, I don't have pictures of my wife being seasick, and even if I did, I would not put one up here, or I'd be <laughs> walking home tonight. Um, but people just, they get seasick, and it's not uncommon to just pass out. And, I mean, I could tell you other stories from when I used to live in the Bahamas and going out at sea on a boat, and uh, one time my wife and I went on a freighter, during a really bad storm from one island we were going to the, from Nassau where we lived we were going to Abaco and it was really bad storm um, people were down below seasick passed out etc I went up on the deck they don't like having passengers on the deck but I went on the deck and tied myself to the mast and I thought and I was just you know hooping and hollering it was like the greatest water ride I'd ever been on I was just this is great because I remember that I'm standing right in front of the wheelhouse and the captain and the first mate and everything just like what kind of idiot is this out here but it was such a ride I mean waves coming over the bow going totally under the water oh my gosh it was so cool we had a bunch of chickens tied to the front um, in cages tied on the bow of the ship and they were clucking every now and then and then all of a sudden it just sort of got quiet how many times they went under the water they'd all drowned is what it was every chicken was dead on the boat um, so it was it was really interesting she did not, my wife did not get sick on that journey. Yeah. You, yeah, you took a lot of Dramamine and you were out, but not seasick out. You just, you were okay. I was having a ball. I was like, this is great. I'm loving this. It was like being a great America or something. So Jonah, I believe, is really just sick as, as he can possibly be. But did you notice the captains are saying, they've called out to their gods. Now they wake up Jonah, they're coming down. You know, wake up, wake up. Pray to God. It's interesting. Do you notice what these, these pagans are doing? They're praying. What's Jonah doing? He's sleeping. Do you remember Jonah's occupation? 
He's a prophet. He's a missionary. And he's not even praying. <laughs> so he hasn't prayed yet. <laughs> he's running from God, of course. But yeah, that's what's going on. We pick up at verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. But do you notice? They are associating this with anger to the gods. This isn't an ordinary storm. These mariners are picking out that this is something to do with deity. Some deity, in their mind, some deity is very angry with them. And so they're trying to figure out how do we, you know, who, who offended them? Who do we have to, to punish and stuff? So this isn't a normal storm. Or they would not be doing something like this. But that's what's going on. So they, they cast lots. And casting lots, um, most of the time at this period of time, um, back in this period during history, casting lots, many times the lots were not like dice, like we would think to dice. Uh, cast lots is like flipping a coin or something. Um, or casting, you know, throwing dice or something. Um, most of the time, the, the Phoenicians were using bones that they would mark with markings or knock holes in and stuff like this so they could identify the bones and then they would use those as dice. So they'll probably pulling out stuff like this. I mean, later on, dice are made. Um, but during this time, it was usually bones or stones that they would use. And these are actually from a museum. These are copies uh, or photographs of, of small little bones that have been made into lots that they could cast and try to determine who's, who's the bad guy, who caused this calamity to come upon us. So they're casting lots. And of course, the lot uh, falls on Jonah. Jonah is the one that they determine. And so obviously, God is not only in charge of and sovereign over the, the weather, the seas, he's also controlling this because he identifies to these pagans who the real person is, who, who he's in trouble with. I find it interesting that these mariners are catching these little bits here that, the God, you know, that, that a God is angry. We don't know who he is, but we know a God is angry at this point. And the God will help us identify, which he does. They're praying to the gods, and Jonah is identified. And they get the right guy. So it's fascinating. Verse 8. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil's come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What's your country? Of what people are you? So now they start asking the questions uh, where Jonah obviously has not told them anything, if you notice. Because not the captain nor anybody on board knows anything about this guy. He has paid a fare. It was probably one of these, you guys going to Tarshish, trying to, you know, as he goes down to the dock, or, or where are you going? We're going to Tarshish. Ooh, that's far enough, yeah. Um, how much is passage? They probably gave him a thing. Um, yeah, I'll pay that if you ask no questions. Just give me passage. Because they don't know anything about him. They don't know where he's from or anything. What people are you? They don't even know that he's Hebrew. They don't know anything. They don't know he's a prophet of God. Nothing. So that's what now we find out in, in verse 8. Do you notice now, look at verse 9 and look what Jonah does. And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You notice what Jonah is finally doing? He's finally doing his occupation. This should have been the first thing he should have been doing. As a missionary, he should have been very upfront. I'm a prophet of God, et cetera, et cetera. But no, he kept his religion and his relationship with God hidden. And only when calamity came does he now start to preach to the people. He starts to witness to them. Yeah, great missionary, huh? The missionary finally preaches when he's cornered and there's no other way out. Now he starts to witness about God. 
Um, you know, we find uh, many uh, people doing, Christians today, doing the same thing. They don't want to let their Christianity be, be known. This morning I was sitting at Fort um, right after breakfast. Ron Robertson was doing the devotion for our Project Serve people. And that's what he was speaking on this morning. As he was talking to about, oh, 20, 25 people, mostly college students. And he was telling them and challenging them not to be, he didn't use Jonah, but he was basically saying this, not to be hidden in your in your Christianity. He says, we have too many Christians today just totally hiding our Christianity. And then he said, one thing that I have done many times in my life, and I still do this, I will get into a situation where I will be with a lot of people I don't know. They don't know me, I don't know them. And so one thing that I often pray when I'm in a situation like that is I'll pray silently right there, Lord, expose my, my Christianity to them. And so he was relating a story today where he was working on a house with a bunch of people and he didn't know any of them. At lunchtime, they took a break. They're all sitting in this one room. They were painting a house and doing other things. And as he was sitting in a room, he said, um, didn't know anybody there. And he said, Lord, please expose my Christianity to these, to these men. And he says, as soon as he finished praying, one of the guys says, hey, aren't you that Pastor Truman Robertson's son? And he said, yes, I am. And then he started talking to him about God. God opened up the opportunity. And he mentioned a couple of other times where he has prayed that and God opens up the opportunity. So here's the thing that we can all, myself included, we should be a little bit more bold many times, not trying to hide our Christianity, trying to hide behind something. Yes, yes, I'm a Christian and hiding behind the corners of the walls and things. We should ask God to give us opportunities to you know, expose who we are. And then we can use these, and God will be able to utilize this time. And eventually, the person who asked that question, Ron said, as he was telling the story, actually, he came to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. See, that's a missionary. And Jonah should have been doing this. He's not doing this. So look at verse 10 now. This, this verse really amazes me. I love this. After Jonah preaches, and he says who he is, who his God is. He identifies God to them. It says next, the men were exceedingly afraid. Why would they be? I mean, they're already afraid, right? They're scared for their lives. But now, after hearing who is responsible, it's not Jonah they're afraid of. These mariners, they know, they have knowledge appearing that they have knowledge of this Hebrew God. And they know his reputation when aroused, no doubt being Phoenicians, which borders Israel, no doubt they had heard stories about this God in their travels around the world, going to Egypt and stuff, about a God who wiped out Egypt with plague, uh, a God who, who craw, uh, allowed people to cross the Red Sea and the Jordan River, um, even the Jordan River at flood stage, and he let his people walk across on dry land, who has done miracles and things. These mariners apparently have a knowledge of who God is. Now, of course, they were not Israelites, so they probably were worshiping. We know they were worshiping a lot of other gods. They had idols and stuff. But during this point, when they are told who is doing this, they seem to have an idea of who God is, and fear totally overcomes them. They are not just afraid of the storm. They are even, it says here, exceedingly, even more afraid now because of who is behind this. So Jonah does his job finally. The mariners recognize who God is. This is who we're dealing with, and they are terrified at this point. 
So looking more again at uh, verse 10, and we'll go to 12. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is that or this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told him. These men had knowledge of God. They had knowledge of God. And now they're, at, you know, what did you do that he's so mad at you that he's going to take us out type thing? That's what's going on. So Jonah, it says in, in verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. The sea is getting worse as the time is going on. And as it's getting worse and worse and worse, this is, you know, they don't know what to do. So they ask, what should we do to you? In other words, we're doomed. We understand that. Is there anything we can do? And because it's getting worse, it's not getting better since they've been identified. They've identified the gods behind this. It's getting worse. What in the world should we do? They ask the question. In other words, in a way, how can we be saved? To put it in a different phrasing of linguistics here. What can we do to be saved? That's their question. That's what they're asking. These pagan sailors now look for a way to appease an angry God. That's what's going on here. They're trying to appease God. What do we have to do? They're talking to the missionary. What do we have to do to be saved? What do we have to do to appease this God? And look at what verse 12 says. And he, he said to them, pick me up, hurl me into the sea, then the sea will, be, will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Do you realize what's going on here now? The sailors know who God is. God has been identified. They know their condition at this point. They're going to die. They're doomed. They ask, what must we do to be saved? And Jonah says, sacrifice me, and you'll live. Jonah chooses to die for the salvation of the men on board. See, as I told you in the first lesson, the book of Jonah is a book of salvation. There's a lot of parallels between Jonah and Jesus. Not just geographical, that they lived in basically the same spot, but so much more. We see the same thing. Jonah is going to offer himself as a sacrifice for the pagan sailors. Now, remember, this is a guy who didn't like the Assyrians, these Hebrew people, these Israelites, they don't like Gentiles. Gentiles are worthless flesh to them. But Jonah is saying, I care about you. If you sacrifice me, you'll live. He's wanting to go to death for these pagans, for these Gentiles. It's amazing. That's what he wouldn't do with Nineveh. Now he's offering this to these, uh, these sailors from a, a different country. But do you notice what the sailors do? Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Do you notice the sailors pass up the offer of salvation and try and work out their salvation on their own? Did you catch that? Isn't it amazing? Don't you see the parallels here with the good news, the gospel. People today do the same thing. We still see people doing the same thing. These mariners refuse the offer of salvation. 
Just like today, there are people who are refusing God's plan of salvation. Instead, they try and come up with their own way to do it. Um, they, they're trying to say, that can't be the only way of appeasing God. That can't be the only way of salvation. I think if we do this, we can be saved. Oh, I believe if we do it this way, we can be saved. Oh, if you do this, you can go to heaven. Oh, you don't have to follow Christianity. Any religion can get you there if you're good enough, if you do certain tasks and stuff. No. But that's what the mariners are doing. The same thing we see. They've been told the way of salvation, and they try to fix it on their own. And how many people do that same thing today? Picking up verse 14 and 15. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as it please you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. So they tried their own way. It didn't work. They refused Jonah's offer of grace, of salvation. They tried to row the thing themselves. It could not be done. They realized we are going to die unless we yield to God. And so they do. And so they sacrifice him. And they, I love this. Do you catch it? That these pagans are praying to God. They pray to God. I mean, that's a prayer. Oh, Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. They're praying to God. I mean, this is amazing that these guys do this. Then you get to verse 16. Then the men, and I love this, the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Once they got rid of Jonah, after they did the thing, they throw Jonah over, the sea, it says, went calm. Just like when Jesus calms the sea, instantly it goes calm. Even the disciples, when this happened, when this, Jesus was in the boat with the disciples, the boat they're afraid is going to sink. Jesus is somehow sleeping in the back. They wake him up. Jesus, don't you care? We're going to drown. He stands up and he says, quiet, be still. And instantly the boat is, is sitting just in dead calm water. The skies, which were raising, has stopped. The sea with its massive waves has stopped. And the disciples sit there and they look at each other and they go, who is this man that even... The wind and the seas obey him. The sailors are having the exact same conclusion. They throw Jonah over. Instantly, the storm is over. The worst storm they've probably ever seen in their life. They all thought they were going to die. And now, as soon as it's over, it says, the men feared the Lord exceedingly and made an offer and a sacrifice. You know what happens here? What are they doing? They're worshiping God. These guys who worshiped other gods, pagans and stuff, now they turn to the worship of God. Whether they continue in this, we are never told. But we do know at this point, these people turned to God. These unsaved people. These pagan people. And stuff like that. <sighs> Fascinating. Now, because we have this really interesting contrast of individuals, you have Jonah and you have the sailors. I wanted to make a T-chart. Because a lot of times in education, when you're comparing two different things, it's best to make a T-chart. And, and show the similarities and the differences between them. Uh, it's, just, it's a way of visualizing it and, and helps you see things a little bit more clearly. So let me just show you really simple here. We have Jonah here on the left, and I've got the sailors on the right of this T-chart. And over here, Jonah, as I've written, being an Israelite, he had a relationship with God but was insensitive to the lost. When God told him to go to Nineveh, as witness to these Assyrians, he says, no way, I'm not going. The sailors, on the other hand, were pagan men, not missionaries, pagan men. They had no relationship with the true God, but were sensitive to God. Jonah's insensitive to the lost. The sailors end up being sensitive 
to God. Jonah is a spiritually insensitive man. Not a good characteristic if you're going to be a missionary. The sailors, you notice through this whole thing, they're looking for God. They're searching for God. Each one, it says, was praying to their God, trying to figure out which one's the real God to help us here. They're looking for God. I love how Jonah, what a great example of how not to be and how not to do things. Jonah doesn't bother to, to pray at all. That's, that's not his thing. He's not praying. And no time are, do we ever see Jonah, our missionary friend here, never do we see him, this evangelist, praying to God. Yet, we see that the sailors actually prayed to God. And then the fourth one on this chart, Jonah was running away from God's call. And I love how this story ended at this point. The sailors end up willing to go the way of God. They actually worship and sacrifice to God. How different these two people are. I'm more impressed with the sailors than I am with Jonah. (laughs) But there's more. More I want to show you. Jonah had a knowledge of God. Obviously, he's a prophet of God. But he could care less when he was called upon. These sailors had very little knowledge of God. They obviously knew who he was, because when they found out who was behind all this, they were terrified. So they had some little knowledge of God, but did you catch that they hungered to know him? Tell us about this God. What can we do? What do we do to appease God? That's what the sailors were doing. Jonah had no compassion for the lost. Yeah, go preach these people. Oh, I don't want to. They're not good enough. They're, they're too mean. They're not nice people. They're Gentiles. I don't want to. The sailors, uh, the sailors were compassionate to Jonah. These Gentiles, pagans who were worshiping other gods, are compassionate to Jonah. They don't want him to die. Jonah, extremely rebellious. The sailors become committed. They actually worship God, sacrifice to God. And then we see the last thing here. Jonah was disciplined. This is all a discipline action by God. He was disciplined by God, yet the sailors end up worshiping God. Isn't that an interesting contrast? I don't know if you've ever seen that before with this book. I know we've probably, many of you have read this book many times, but did you catch these wonderful little tidbits of what's going on here? And as I said in the first lesson, and again tonight, we're going to see such salvation in this book. Jonah sacrifices himself for the salvation of these pagans, for the salvation of these lost people who don't even know that much about God. Who could? They have other guys and stuff. They're, they're filthy people and stuff. But Jonah eventually sacrifices his life for them. We don't see him saying, row harder, row harder. We don't see that. He shows compassion to him. Eventually, and sacrifices himself. Do you see the similarities between Jonah and Jesus? This book is remarkable. And we're still just in the first chapter. So many more things to show you. But that's as far as we're going to get tonight. There's one more verse in here, and it's verse 17. But that's what we're going to talk about next week. It'll probably take me the whole night just to talk about and a great fish swallowed Jonah. 
I'm going to show you a lot of marine biology next week with this one. But let's close in prayer tonight. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful book. I just love this book. And Lord, seeing the similarities as we not just read it as a novel, but as we sit and we dissect it and look at what's going on in the lives of the people that are here. It is amazing. And Lord, I I pray that all of us, myself included, would be more unlike how Jonah was in hiding our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that you would give us opportunities as we go through life, just expose who we are. Just like you did with Jonah, you exposed who he was. And I hope it doesn't take a major storm for it to happen to us, but Lord, give us the opportunity and then use us as tools to spread your good news of salvation that is available to everyone, even pagans. We thank you, ask you to bless our treat tonight and bless everyone and give us all safe journey home, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.